Coming to you from the mountain fortress of pop culture. You're listening to Time to Talk. Sushi roll. You're listening to Time to Talk Australia. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or iHeartRadio. Well, Kylie fans will remember that during the Impossible Princess era, our favourite star and all-round class act was mightily miffed by the release of an unauthorised biography. It was the very first time that we fans got to see a meaningful glimpse behind the scenes of Kylie Incorporated. The book by journalist Dina Scatina tracked Kylie's life through her childhood and it focused heavily on the genesis of her amazing career, the rise of her most famous character, Charlene Mitchell, and the subsequent almost unbearable pressure and stress that came along with mega international success. Did she literally have a breakdown in 88? Now listen, the book, which is called Kylie, an unauthorised biography, with the emphasis almost angrily on the word unauthorised, is for the most part extremely fair. And it is indeed fascinating to read about what was going on for our Kylie as she negotiated newfound and very profound stardom, how it impacted on her relationships with men, and how she beautifully evolved into a media-savvy professional. As we all know, it is rare for us to get a glimpse of cranky Kylie, but we saw it when this book was released. She scoffed and she almost sneered at its content, especially taking exception to a story about how she lost her virginity. The book's author is with us, Dino Scatina. G'day. G'day, Tim. How are you doing? Not too bad. It's been a long time since you authored this book, but it sits around haunting you like a ghost, I'm imagining. (laughs) I tell you what, this is probably the first time I've had to think about the book in some 20 years or so. Um, And, you know, it's just your your charming nature that's (laughs) drawn me out to talk about it again. Well, I've never been described like that, but you've got off on the right foot with me, Dino, because as a mega Kylie fan, technically, I'm meant to be standing here with a pitchfork in my hand, aren't I, right now? I mean, you pricked, you did prick the calm facade of Kylie Minogue. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, I sort of still have nightmares about some of the, the sort of fallout after this book came out. Um, you know, it was so interesting because a lot of the book was actually, you know, exactly about how the sort of um, Kylie and her more so Kylie's people, um, sort of manipulated the media. And, you know, it was, it was so bizarre to, the you know, I spent a year and a half or something working on the book. It came out and suddenly I was completely swept and spat back out in the whirlpool of, um, you know, Kylie-ness that I'd been describing in the book. It was a, it was a bizarre experience to go through. Aside from just telling the stories from her early career, there is, in my opinion, it's there is exposition, and I think the the key point that you were trying to make in this book, besides telling the stories, which are fascinating, is that Kylie and her team often bemoan the dishonesty of the media, yet they themselves can be equally as dishonest and manipulative. This writing this book, I'd been a journalist, I'd been a music journalist 
for something like, I don't know, five years or something before I sat down to write this, even more professionally. Um, and one of uh, the sort of, I, I'd been working for a magazine called Duke in Melbourne, which is my hometown, the same as Kylie. And, you know, one of the things that sort of made me do this was that, I'm, you know, we grew up, never met her in my life in Melbourne, um, but we only grew up a few miles from each other and we were born in the same year. So we were sort of like, you know, we shared a lot in common. But anyway, so I, I was a journalist in Melbourne for a music magazine called Duke. That was my first job. And, um, you know, I can remember, like, I, I came out of journalism college and I always wanted to be a music journalist and this job fell in my lap. And it was one of the sort of, you know, the sort of snottier you know, music magazines. And I just remember this was like in 1989 and – they put Kylie on the cover just after I started. I was just, I was outraged. I was just like, why are you putting this soap opera crap on the cover of a serious? That's where I was at with Kylie at that stage. You were this a is, serious journalist. I that's said. right. I thought it was a serious, you know, I'd come and join, I joined the serious music magazine. Um, and this was before, just before uh, Rhythm of Love. That that sort of changed things for me, okay? that We'll get onto that later. But so... I was I, I had a few years there, and then I went to Sydney to work on Rolling Stone magazine. I was one of the editors there, and it was towards my, the end of my time there that someone approached me to write this book. But the, one of the first facts I got told by this friend of mine who'd gone on to work for it was a new idea or Woman's Day, one of those magazines, was how um, Kylie's manager, Terry Blamey, was also managing Danny, whose career was anything but stellar at that point. Yeah. So this person at, at New Idea, like, revealed to me how there was this whole side business that Terry Blamey had going, where especially for Danny and, oh, my God, I just almost had the other girl's name. Anyway, especially for Danny, would um, set up pap photos and then sell them to magazines and you know provide the the um unnamed source quotes and i was just i mean you know that's now sort of commonplace everyone knows that sort of stuff happens but i'd never heard of anything like that at that point in my life and i just felt so betrayed by the music industry (laughs) i've been you know i've been on the other side of that sort of just falling for all that sort of stuff and i just thought oh my god i'm bit you know trying to be a serious journal, being so manipulated. Yeah. Her manager would say repeatedly, and it got sort of bigger and bigger, that, oh, half of what everything you read about Kylie is just made up. And it would, it would get, the number would get bigger over the years. Oh, 80% of everything you read about Kylie is just made up, right? Yeah. And then on the other side of this, he was telling the newspapers, oh, that guy, Dino, he hasn't even met her. I'm like, What? <laughs> Yeah, just it was almost like um, a pre pre Trumpian sort of behavior. You know, you just say it enough, and it becomes the truth. And it was just this chaotic, you know, go with the flow. You know, make it up. It doesn't matter. It'll all be gone tomorrow. And that's you know, especially that sort of early pop part of her career. And um, with Danny's career, is how he sort of worked things. How does it come to be that you are authoring an unauthorized biography? How does that come to be if you're not well, a fan? Uh, that that was then, and then when it came to um, when I was approached to do the book was the mid '90s, so it was already right. quite a few years later. She'd already gone through her transformation, right, from that little you know buffy head girl 
from neighbours into the sort of you know more uh, you know fashion chic post rhythm of love. Yeah, post rhythm mm-hmm. of love. You know the whole Michael Hutchins thing. And by the time it came to the mid '90s, she'd already made her first deconstruction record. And yeah. so you know my whole view of her had changed by by around nineteen. Well, what year was that? Ninety four, maybe that record. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. She, you know, I wasn't like the, you know, her greatest fan ever, but I was like, I was quite impressed that she was obviously maturing as an artist and, you know, maturing in a really sort of brilliant way as well, musically. So, you know, on the back of that, I was at Rolling Stone and I, um, I did my first interview with her for Rolling Stone magazine. And then in quick succession, because of that article, I was asked to write this large feature story for um, the Australian newspaper. And then out of uh, writing that article, which is obviously a very mainstream publication, um, that's where the ball started rolling with this, one of the publishers from Penguin approaching, approaching me via the, uh, the, the editor at Rolling Stone at that time, a woman called Kathy Bale, who I actually dedicated the book to and said it was all her fault. Um, (laughs) And you know, her, she. I remember she received this call from this this publisher, this woman called Julie Gibbs from Penguin, yeah, you know, to ask me if I was interested in doing a book on Kylie. I remember, you know, Kathy turned around while we were sitting at Rolling Stone and said to me, "Oh my God, she wants you to do a book." And my first reaction was, "Are you kidding me?" And she just looked at me and goes, "Oh, you're crazy." And I just thought for a sec, literally for a second, I thought, "Oh, you're absolutely right." And it was that sort of. <laughs> You're right. I should do a book about Kylie. That's a great idea. Well, yeah, and 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 this so often happens in journalism too. You start researching a topic, and then as you scratch away and scratch away and become more in inverted commas expert, you realise, right. hang on, there, there's something here, and so I can see how the pieces fell into place for you. What yeah. what I'm really curious about though is that when you embark on this project, you don't have the cooperation of. Kylie or her team, particularly Terry Blamey, who I'm dying to ask you more about, and I will mm, shortly. Mm. You don't have Michael Hutchins, Jason Donovan. You don't have Danny, the family. You don't even have quotes from Bouncer, from Neighbours, from what I can <laughs> see. <in the> book. <laughs> you know. So how, how do you actually? Good one, put, Tim. <laughs> boom, boom. boom. <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, it must be. How do you go about putting together a book about Kylie, especially the rise of Kylie, without all those key figures? And in fact, from what I understand, those key figures not only not cooperating with you, but shutting down all around you. That's right. Terry had told all those people, all those sorts of people, don't talk to him, right, to me. Mm. Um, And I'd I'd had a couple of conversations. I think I, I laid out an introduction. Had a couple of very sort of open conversations with Terry about doing the book and he was in a way into the idea as long as he had um, the final cut, the final edit on the book. And I was like, oh, no, Terry, that's not, you know, I don't, that's not the sort of book I want to write. You know, I don't want it to be a sort of, because Kylie had spent the first few years, I mean, Terry was a, a clever guy and sort of knew how to exploit her popularity. So he'd put out all those, uh, those fanzines, you know, mm-hmm. which were, you know, basically PR sheets with glossy photos and they'd sold millions, you know. So yeah, they were always out of press. They always had yeah. to, to push more out. That you couldn't yeah. get your hands on them. Yeah, absolutely right. So the idea for him, the idea of a biography, was you know more of that ilk. And what what possibly could he gain from a, an in depth, you know, revealing the true Kylie sort of you know work from someone who he didn't know. 
from an outsider. So okay. sorry, Dino, but it's sounding like we're going from a discussion with Terry about creating a puff piece of a biography to then him having the realisation that, hang on, this dude actually wants to peel back the onion a little bit. I basically had, had no in to her world at that point. Everything was blocked to me. But what I had was everything that she'd left behind here. I have people, I got to speak to people, and there's lots of people who didn't want to be named and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, friends of theirs who are in, who are in the car, you know, with just Kylie, Jason, and this other person, you know, yeah. while Kylie and Jason are having arguments about whatever, you know, while they're supposed to not be in a relationship anyway. I had um, people, I had a, a guy who was sitting on the bed when – Michael was propositioning Kylie and Jason, you know, he had Jason distracted, getting Jason stoned in another room because he wanted to make his moves on Kylie. I had people like um, Gary Ashley, who was one of the, uh, uh, you know, big sort of, he was Michael Gudinski's right-hand man in um, in Mushroom. Mushroom. Fundamental and, in her career, right? Right, you know, and so he was there, and which you know, he he'd already left Mushroom, so he was like, I wouldn't, he would never have spoken to me if he was still at Mushroom, but he he just happened to have left Mushroom at that point. So he was with, you know, he was with Kylie when Michael chased her in Hong Kong. You know, he's with Kylie and and Carol, and Michael was sort of pull, trying to pull Kylie away, you know, and then only a, a, about a month later. He's in the hotel room with Jason Donovan in New York when Kylie calls Jason to call it quits. So I had those sort of sources, you know. Incredible. So you, you had first-hand sources, reliable, trustworthy. You knew you had what you needed to, to put this book together, right? And the, I can't, you know, I sort of, you, you know, journalistic ethics and stuff. I can't yep. tell you who my secret sources were. But I can tell you some of them were so ridiculously well-placed. And that, I was going to sort of draw the point to being from Melbourne. Um, so I went back to Melbourne to, to write the book because I'd been, I'd, I'd been living in Sydney um, working at Rolling Stone. And even though, you know, from over in London, Terry Blamey, you know, told people not to talk to me, all these people in, in Melbourne in like Mushroom Records and stuff like that, uh, you know, I've, I've been working with them for nearly a decade. Some of them yeah. were very close friends to my, of mine, you know. There was people like, again, the person that Nick Cave gave the demo tape of uh, Wild, Wild Roses to get to Kylie because Terry was trying to block her. Yes. Yeah, I, Terry was trying to block Nick Cave getting the tape to her. You've got your sources lined up and you've got Terry bringing the shutters down uh, around you. How did it feel when the book was released and you literally have Kylie, who never normally comments on this sort of stuff, scoffing? sneering telling people not to believe it did it i'm guessing after reading the book it absolutely shouldn't have surprised you because everything you say in the book led to that one fact which was they have total control of Mm -hmm. what is presented to the public and that's actually the point of the book so it shouldn't have surprised you at all when they took aim at you but what was it like what was that backlash like well that didn't surprise me i was totally expecting that and it just I don't know, again, I don't know if it was coincidence or whether it was some sort of, you know, um, sort of manipulation of events on on Terry's side, but it just happened that Kylie landed in town the day the book was coming out, Mm -hmm. you know. And so suddenly we were having this, um, 
this sort of tiff in the media. I was at the, by that stage. I was working at the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, so that was like you know, it's not what it is now. It's a totally different newspaper back then, I should add, but it was still a tabloid newspaper. So you know, we're having this to and throw on the pages of our newspaper. We're on TV. You know, people were interviewing her and then coming to me for comment. I mean, all that I sort of expected. What I didn't quite expect was how I'd had a career for, as I said, for a few years as a as a serious music writer, suddenly there was just this torrent of you know negativity towards me and just basically, you know, being tagged a liar. You know, just mm. at, like I'd made everything up, whereas I never made anything up. <laughs> I swear to you, Tim, I never made anything up. You know? So that was that was bizarre. I, I am actually looking forward to, you know, in the kindest way, taking you to task over some of the, the content of the book. However, is it how did it impact your career? You, 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 you're branded a liar. Kylie's team have, have said that. And then you have get this torrent that you describe. What impact did it have on you personally and your career? Um, it had no impact on my career because mm-hmm. at that point I was um, – uh, as I said, with the Daily Telegraph. And back then, the Daily Telegraph was such a powerful media entity. Yeah. And I very much felt at that point that I was a, um, a journalist rather than a, uh, you know, someone who worked in the music industry. Uh, people who had never questioned my integrity were now questioning my integrity. Wow. That's, you know, and there was this... <laughs> I just have to tell you this funny, bizarre thing that happened. You know, one of the the things that sort of the you know the, that cast the book in a certain light was the fact that it came out early November um, nineteen ninety seven. I think it was Michael died. You know, there was this whole other kerfuffle going on with me and in excess at that time wow. <laughs> through the newspaper because, as I said, I, anyway. In excess, it arrived back in town, and I'd written a sort of a, a story about them that they weren't too pleased about. So suddenly, you know, not only was I like the you know the enemy of Kylie. Once Michael passed, I was like tabloid trash. You know, I was mm-hmm. I'd been cast as basically a sort of. You were a villain, and and I was a villain. Yeah, that's sort of, yeah. <clears throat> what I love about this story, which is a bit sick is you write this book about Kylie, right, and you're right in there into the how fame is constructed and how it's controlled and how it's manipulated, yet after it was released, you became just one chapter in that, actually. You became part of the story after it was released. Oh, and Not, cast not even a chapter, not even a chapter, mm. you know, a, a, a paragraph, a sentence, not even exactly. You were just another one of the many distractions you wrote about that they had to overcome. Because essentially, this book, for those who haven't read it, is a set of obstacles that Kylie had to overcome, and how she and her management sort of um, manipulated their way around them. And I, I actually take my hat off to it. I think, oh, genius, genius, what you're telling me, what they did, genius. Mm-hmm. I feel but the same way. You're exposing it, though, at the same time, and, and they mustn't have liked that. What about the Kylie fans when this was released? Because we are a loyal bunch. I get my own taste of Kylie backlash because I'm someone who loves Kylie 
and knows about her more than the average Kylie fan, yet I'm not afraid to say when a piece of work she does isn't is a bit mediocre or whatever. I know what it's like to be on the receiving end. Did the Kylie fans come after you? There was a lot of vitriol. And by now, by you know, 1977, there was, you know, the internet was sort of, you know, emerging. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you could hear views of, of punters out there. And um, I, I I can't remember if it was that initial release, I think, or um, when the book was reprinted around um, Can't Get You Out of My Head, sort of when she'd sort of sprung back in the UK. But yeah. they some magazine had the, the top five had a vote for the top five um, Kylie villains, and I was one of their choices. <laughs> so I don't know who won. Like, I don't know if, if I actually took out the title, but wow. yeah, no, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. You know, Kylie fans. I could it's fair to say hated me. You were a um, an answer in a trivia contest that I wrote about Kylie once. <laughs> who was the author of the Kylie unauthorized? And um, yeah, fifty hands of Kylie fans went up. Everyone knew Dino, no, and oh and we don't God. just say Dino Scatina in our community. Dino, we go Dino Scatina uh, like that. Dino effing Scatina. <laughs> <laughs> now listen, hey, you, and by the way, yeah, you know yeah. I've got to say as well mm. that after. After I'd finished writing the book, even before it came out and all this happened, it was I was like, I am never again writing an unauthorized book. Really, you know, it's just not worth the pain. Wow, it's not my thing. You know, it wasn't. It, you know, did you make much money out of it? Oh, uh, you know, it was the, one of the um, negatives. I, I made some money. I didn't make a huge amount of money. Penguin were expecting it to be like you know humongous, but then when um, Kylie, one of the results of what the reaction from Kylie in the camp was that Penguin sort of got scared and just sort of lost interest in the book. What, you think that they didn't promote it as hard as they could have if it wasn't for the backlash? Uh, you know, it just felt like they just, clean, you know, washed their hands of it. Mm, that's interesting. I that may have been because they thought it was a you know, terrible book as well, so I can't say... Do you know what's unfair to you? I want to stand up for you a little bit, actually, Dino, especially on behalf of all the Kylie fans. I've got to say, Tim, you don't need to, but go ahead. Well, I I want to because I've read this book many, many times. And even though Kylie and uh, her management pluck out a few facts, which I'm going to go into with you soon, uh, that they say are ridiculous, um, they sort of – it misrepresents the book. Because when you read the whole thing, for the absolute bulk of it, it's just telling stories about her time, her rise to fame, and then beyond that too, right up to around the point she's making her first deconstruction album in a way. And for the most part, there is no judgment, there's no exposition. However, can I bring you to to this point? You mentioned, you know, that it was re-released around when she had her renaissance. Mm -hmm. I love this and I I really want to get your perspective on it. And I am, yes, adopting a smug tone. At the end of the book, right? Oh, Uh, God, yes. I regret the end of the book. Yeah, I bet bet you (laughs) do. (laughs) Because it was written before, you know. So so she makes her renaissance around Uh, the 2000s, you know, uh, spinning around, can't get you out of my head. And I would have loved to have watched your face as all that came out. Because (laughs) (laughs) you make a prediction at the end of the book. Um, I'm going to read it to you and I want to get your your response. Yeah. So, uh, and honestly, it was really offensive to me even at the time. Um, So it said, it would take a miracle for Kylie to make an impression on the US charts again. And then, Dino, you go on to advise her, go back to acting or something, Kylie, something like Melrose Place. 
Yeah. Come God, on, that, that, That's aged well, hasn't it? <laughs> and then you say she may not sell anywhere near the number of records that she used to in the old days, but it shouldn't bother her in the slightest. I know. Little God. did you know, right? Little did right. you know. But, you know, a, a lot of that was just based on, firstly, she, she'd essentially even – this was just the, because the book was finished. I can't, when did Impossible Princess come out? I think the book and Impossible Princess came out around the same time. Okay. Yeah. 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 This is when um, she was attacking you because she was promoting Impossible Princess and, and a lot of people were asking her around the same time. And this book, right. can you tell us about that? So, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, that's absolutely right. You're totally correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, she appeared at that point. You know, she hadn't toured in years. Yep. In years at that by that stage, and it just and she was doing her movies, and it just felt that she, you know, she'd been sort of chained down to Stockaken and Waterman for all those years. You know, she'd broken free, and you know, Michael, would, Michael, and people like Nick Cave had taught her how to be an artist. You know, you call the shots, mm-hmm. and so she she had these two deconstruction records, but her heart just didn't seem to actually be in music. And I'm, this is also based on, you know, on this long interview that I conducted with her yeah. just before I wrote the book as well, yeah. you know. So it was based on that. I was where I just walked away thinking, oh, you know, she'll do music, but I don't think she's she's going to go to her even. You Can know, I tell I, you, Dino, this is what surprised me, though, but because Kylie fans often talk about this, the ones that have been from the beginning. There was something about her right from the beginning that we knew was going to be big, and sensational and when she did impossible princess and it didn't chart so well i wrote in a forum at the time and it got a lot of response from the kylie community was she will not only return to pop she will redefine it so for us as fans we could see no this is this is just a detour in the journey but for you after having met her i'm surprised being in her presence that you didn't see something bigger looming let's talk about that interview you had a chance to to speak with her at bondi beach and my claim to fame, I think I've told you before when we were organising this, is that I, I was probably just up the road in my unit when you were doing this interview, which infuriates yeah. me that I didn't wander down the road and accidentally see you both. I have to say, as a piece of writing, forget Kylie for a moment, the description of this interview is just beautiful. It's so visual. It's so descriptive. I'm sitting there with you while you're interviewing her. And because I know Kylie so well, every gesture you describe she's making and every Every ploy she pulls out during the mm. interview, deflection, smile, charm, mm. seduction, she does it all to you. And you mm. just write it so well. I've read that bit with such a smile on my face. Tell us what it was like to sit down and interview Kylie. I think I mentioned to you that I, since you called me, I actually went and dragged out the tape from that interview, which I literally have not played, like most of the, you know, basically every interview I've ever done never played back, you know, you never listened to them back to them, but I just, I transferred it um, off, you know, the, the old little uh, audio cassette. Um, so I had to listen to it and I was reminded of, of the experience. It's sort of, you know, it's, it's hearing the audio. It's like put, put me straight back into that cafe and, you know, whenever it was like yeah. um, 1995. Um, and she, she looked totally different when she walked in because she'd been living in Bondi um, for that summer. Mark Gerber, right? The boyfriend of the time, Mark Gerber from Sirens. I think she was shacked up with him at the time. And well, just listening back to it the other day, I can't remember if I even put this in the book, but um, she, 
she tells me she was actually staying with Jason. Oh, yes. Right? Okay. But you're right. She, had, she was going out with Mark Gerber at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was so it was so it was almost surreal. And it's the first thing I say in the book. When you first meet her, the most overwhelming thing is that she is so, so small. Yeah. You know, she's freakishly small. All in perf- perfect sort of, you know, proportion. Proportion. <laughs> but she came in and she was, um, you know, she had red hair, which no one had seen her with red hair hmm. ever. So it was so weird when she first sat down. I was just looking at her and it was like this, you know, she's got cheekbones sort of like that go, you know, fill up the room almost, you know. Um, and having that face in a totally sort of bizarre, tiny form and I was you know I was sort of losing myself in just looking at it in her you face. You were starstruck, Dino. You were starstruck. It wasn't it wasn't starstruck. It wasn't quite starstruck. It was just um th- my brain was trying to process what was going on. Like it was almost like is this really Kylie? You know, that's what it was like. Like wow. is this really Kylie? It was strange. And as you sort of say, you know, she's she's just like um the most del- you know, sickingly delightful person you'll ever meet. Yeah. But, you know, you listen back to the tape and you think back, you you know, I'd, I'd read so many interviews, I'd, you know, gone and done such in-depth research, so many interviews, so little said, you know. And she sort of like dazzles you with, you know, all that sort of stuff and actually how much does she really tell you? I mean, there were a few points where she was quite candid and there's one particular moment um, which I, I'm, I'll, I'll try and get to you, okay? I'll try and pull it out and see if it's usable for you. Thank but you. But where I ask her, you know, she, before she said she'd been, she'd been staying with Jason, I said, I just basically said to her, look, what do you think about what's going on with Jason at the moment? Which at, mm. at this point was, you know, just after the Viper Room and the, you know, the uh, the Face Magazine th- stuff. Like his life was basically, looked like it was falling apart. And, um, and she, go, you know, I sort of took, she was taken aback by the question. And then she gave quite a heartfelt and quite a beautiful answer. Well, let's go to the snippet. Oh, yeah. I was staying at his place over summer. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 I mean, I I don't really know what Jason thinks about what he's doing. I know he's going off to do another stage show in England after he's done a film he's doing in Queensland. But I think it's... It was inevitable that we would branch off and do different things. I couldn't do what he does. I, my, my all-time dream role came up as, as Sandy in Greece in the West End, which I've always seen myself as Sandy. I think it was almost sacrilege, sacrilegious that Debbie Gibson and Sonia both played Sandy with red hair. That <laughs> doesn't gel. Sandy was blonde. <laughs> There's lots I want to talk to you about, but the, let's start with the most controversial parts of the of the book. All right. The, the, well, when I say controversial, they weren't to me at all. They were just written quite um, innocently and innocuously and without judgment. Yet they're in there, and they're the ones that um, Kylie took the most umbrage to, and the one that her team used to discredit you. 
So it starts basically with you saying that Kylie was originally very jealous of Danny's success. You wrote this. Danny's success gave Kylie an inferiority complex. Kylie found an alternative to weeping, however, and that was sex. And then, Dino, you famously go on to talk about how Kylie lost her virginity in a schoolroom cupboard to one of her classmates. Let me remind you of what you wrote. Mm -hmm. But that was just the start of it. Kylie and her closest girlfriends developed something of a reputation with the boys around the local hangouts in Camberwell, the swimming pools and the bowling alley. And then after that famous virginity story, you also quote a guy named Paul who describes having sex with 16-year-old Kylie underneath a house and a bunch of party guests come crashing in on them. So do you still stand by all of that? They're the parts of the, of the book which are just minuscule, but they're the parts that the team, Kylie, point to and go, didn't happen, not true. Well, I mean, I I stand by them factually. Mm-hmm. Well, as, as far as you know, I was told those by people, you know, as I was saying, I, like the sources I had were, yeah, they weren't in the cupboard. I spoke to the guy, Paul, who... You know, it's what he claimed, what he mm-hmm. told me. And, like, you know, if he'd made this story up, well, he he had the most extraordinary detail, you know, like he must have, you know, sat down and decided to construct this whole fabrication. Is there detail so, that he, he gave you that isn't in the book? Uh, it's all pretty lurid because what I was going to say is, you know, 25 years on, factually, I stand by it. Would I have used that material if I was a bit more experienced as a writer? You know, I, I, I don't know. I can't answer that. Do I regret it? I sort of regret it a bit. I, I think I crossed a line. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I deserve everything, all the criticism I copped, you know, for doing an unauthorised book. You know, so, for- so hold on. Can I just reflect back to you? You're saying that even though you stand by it, it might have been in poor taste to have included details about, you know, someone's first sexual experience and early sexual experiences in a book like this. Yeah. Right. But if you didn't, then it wouldn't have got attention. It wouldn't have sold. And these are stories that you were told too. You know, all I can say is I know who told me these things. Mm -hmm. I know who they are. I know, you know, I mean, they're not friends of mine personally, but – I've conducted many interviews and, you, you you know, you just know when someone's telling you the truth and you know if they're, uh, you know, if they're in a position to, you know, be factual about what they're telling you. Can I, can I uh, get a, a second source to, to back up, you know, the cupboard story? Uh, that would probably be impossible unless mm. you gave me, you know, six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So. It's something someone told me, and I phrased it that way in the book. Do I um, have any doubt that they made it up? I have, I have no doubt they, that they made it up, but I also, I, you know, I can't, I don't know if it was um, secondhand information to them either. They, the way I was, especially that story, that, that infamous cupboard story, um, you know, this person who told me virtually had a meltdown after they told me. and were stalking me for a couple of weeks after, well, afterwards, begging me not to repeat it. Wow. So, you know, like there was more context, but if I'd given the context, I would have had to have named names. Right. And again, I mean, you know, ultimately, if Kylie says it didn't happen, maybe it didn't happen either that way. You know, I can't tell you 
that it is the truth. It's the truth as this person, as this source told it to me. Wow. Wow. That's very honest of you, Dino. So, I mean, there, so basically there, there is a question mark over, over the loss of virginity story. Well, I, I, as far as, you know, I, obviously I wasn't there. I'm a journalist, you know, out there trying to find, um, you know, stories. And this story comes to me and mm. I present it. As I said, I, 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 don't, I don't have a, a secondary source to back it up. So I could only phrase it as saying that this, you know, source had claimed this. You also say in the book that Kylie burned all her teenage diaries when she found fame. How on earth do you know something like that? And how accurate is that? Because that's huge. Oh, that, that was from another source. That, that was um, from, I, I can't remember that detail in particular, but that wasn't something that was told to me from, from memory. I think that was from another source. I can't, you know, Tim, I can't even comment on that because I can't remember the, the detail. Sometimes amateurs know best, and a lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to Talk, the show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Uh, I'm really curious about a comment you made about those Neighbours days, if we can talk about Neighbours for a little while. Mm-hmm. You say that some of the older actors were quite resentful of the focus on the younger stars in the show. Mm. Do you know any mm. more about, like, particularly Anne Hattie, you name, who mm. um, played Helen, and I've heard other stories about Helen being a little bit harsh, or Anne Hattie being a bit harsh on set. I spoke to quite a few of the Neighbours directors and, and, and people who worked on Neighbours, yeah, and that was a story that was you know relayed from a couple of sort you know mm. that those sort of stresses um, between the cast was relayed by a couple of different different people. The the point you make about neighbours, I suppose, is it's where Kylie learnt the most valuable lessons on manipulating the media. Uh, how far did the producers go to keep the real relationship between Jason and Kylie a secret? Um, well, look, I think this was the most extraordinary part of the book that uh, this, this fellow called um, Brian Walsh, who's something of a, a legend in Australian television. He he's been running uh, Foxtel for the last, um, I don't know, a couple of decades or something, probably from the outset. He's not running it, but one of the sort of heads of content there. And he was um, head of publicity at channel 10 at that point. And it was his, his idea to, to treat the, the, the young members of the cast of Neighbours like, like pop stars. So he, every Friday night, would take them into shopping centres around the country to sort of build up their profiles, sort of, you know, doing in-store appearances, which people just didn't do back then. It just what This started all that fad, you know, for yeah. every, every major show and publicity. So Brian um, was the one who told me the, um, who took Jason and Kylie up to Sydney. And this is how naive the whole thing was back then. Kylie was so excited to get a holiday to Sydney, you know, for a few days, to Manly for a few days of filming. And this is just as their their real relationship is blossoming. So they're suddenly away from, you know, their parents and whatever, both Kylie and Jason, up in Sydney. They've got a hotel room, you know, they've got hotel, you know, hotel rooms next to each the other. The old travel lodge. Yeah, right. So 
that's where um, you know their life is sort of their their personal personal um, relationship is blossoming, while it's also blossoming as Scott and Charlene on on the screen, and Brian sees what's happening out there in real life, and he's like, and, you know, it's the old you know old pop star adage again, like they used to do it to the Beatles to John Lennon, don't let anyone know you're married, John, you know, yeah, because yeah. the girls won't be interested. So Brian was just was like. You two, this is not allowed. If anything's going on between you know the two of you, you cannot let it be uh, known, or this show will be finished. You'll ruin yeah. the show. So he put the fear of God into these two kids, and so it was very much him who who made who forced them to sort of you know hide their their relationship. Um, and then when um, Stockache and Waterman picked it up, like. A couple of years later, they thought, well, you know, this is working perfectly, the sort of mystique of it all, so keep it going. And that that whole aspect of everything, the 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 secrecy on the Kylie and Jason relationship, I think was one of the most stressful elements of everything for Kylie. This one shocked me. In the book, you talk about her time in Neighbours, and it was the first time at the Logie Awards in Australia. It's 1987. Uh, Kylie wins the Best Female Actress category. But you talk about this secret scandal that went on at the time. That you say the, the, the lady who played Daphne, who was Elaine Smith, she actually got the most votes, yet she didn't get the award. Uh, I can't remember the details, but yes, mm. and I mean, especially with the TV Week Logie Awards, that, that sort of stuff was going on all the time. Mm. Apparently, oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Can I get sued for saying that? I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently, you know, I had you know sources well within that sort of world, and that was not an unusual occurrence. Uh, well, after Kylie had left, well, not well after, but a few years after she'd left Neighbours, there was the release of that v- famous VHS tape. It was called the Scott and Charlene Love Story. Uh huh. And even though I can never find it, and I've been looking for it for years, I do remember at the time watching Kylie. I had to have a copy just sitting on. The shelf next to me. Oh, I've got I've got the tape, but what <laughs> okay. I what, what I can't find is this interview that I watched with her on Hinch show, Darren Hinch, um, and it was the first time, and possibly maybe one of the last times, if I'm going to be honest, that I actually saw the very authentic Kylie. She was angry in this interview, and she she let it show. Hinch was saying, you know, this show made you a star. Why would you possibly be blocking the release of a tape like this? How could you? And she was very feisty in this interview and said, you know, she doesn't want to be, she's tried to move on from that image. She feels that it's exploitation. I would love to see it again. I mean, she right. wasn't wasn't Madonna style of feisty, but she for Kylie, as we know, and you describe so well in the book, she was very controlled and measured at the time and very mysterious in all her answers. Never Very evasive is a better way of putting it. Yeah, Here, she right. just went directly into it. But it, I suppose it goes to the point of how hard she worked to distance herself from, you know, from the image of Charlene Mitchell, which was. I, I think it's more not so much from the image of Charlene of Charlene, but more about that that time in the you know not too distant past where she was being completely controlled by forces outside of her control. What I love about your book is I said at the top of the show, Dino, that um, it's fair. It stems right back to Neighbours days, Kylie's work ethic, her professionalism. You really illuminate the fact that she's a true pro. There's lots of brilliant examples of it in there. But the one thing that stood out to me, though, is you describe, well, actually you reference lots of people 
who talk about Kylie's ability to turn it on and mm. to turn it off. Mm-hmm. But it was something. It was something more than that. It was literally. I love the part um, in the book. Uh, what's the girl's name? Jan, someone who was the uh, where Kylie does. What was it? Sorry, Jan Russ. Who yeah, does, is that the, the casting agent? Yeah. Yeah, Jan yeah. Russ. And Kylie is literally, you know, sitting there in a cardigan auditioning for, for Neighbours and she looks so mousy sitting in the chair. Jan looks at the camera and there's this other entity on, on the screen, you know. So the two other examples that align with that are her sitting in the office of Stock Aiken and Waterman before she records... I should be yeah, so lucky. Right. Yeah. Same thing. There's just this little girl sitting there. And then the other one is when she's filming, you describe it in the book, this filming the video clip for I Should Be So Lucky. And that wonderful, I think it's Amanda Pillman, yeah. a very feisty lady in herself. But mm-hmm. she's there. Um, and you describe the takes. Kylie's like completely girl next door, but then yeah. camera on bang star kylie is right there so it continues throughout your book that this on and off factor that she has yeah and i think it was i think it was the um was it in the stock aiken and waterman when i should be so lucky where she's knitting in between while she's waiting (laughs) crochet or something yeah 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 (laughs) yeah Yeah, that story i have to say i've heard told about a thousand times by different people over the years and it's always slightly different there was basket weaving in one version of the story basket weaving (laughs) (laughs) she brought her loom into the studio (laughs) spinning wheel (laughs) i I tell you what um you know one of the the sort of um most sort of profound quotes in the book for me that's Mm. always stood out is i think it was um uh is it mike stock is that what his name was yep um saying to me, and this is like, you know, I interviewed him in 1995 and they just ended, you know, he, she'd gone off to deconstruction, so he, she'd moved on from them. And he made the observation that she was like Cliff Richard, that if she wanted to, she could be famous, you know, uh, have a high level of fame for the rest of her life. And it was like almost prophetic, you know. she's Here she is having number one albums, you know, 25 years later. I just got the sense, you never write this, Dino, but in the book I got the sense that you're not particularly uh, impressed by her musical abilities. And the reason I got that impression, I suppose, is because you never really mention it, you never talk about performance, you never talk about her her songs or her singles or her albums. It felt like this is not a fan. However, you do quote Mike Stock, as you've just mentioned, about um, basically there was a time that all fans know about after Rhythm of Love. She she wanted absolutely more control. She had a little sample of it in Rhythm of Love. She went and did a couple of songs in the United States. She comes back and she's recording Let's Get To It. And mm. she's sitting with Mike Stock. And this is what you write in the book. He said, to sit with Kylie there for Let's Get To It and to have to work through the process of writing with her, it was an embarrassing situation for me. And then he went on to say, that Kylie would come in with a pad filled with her ideas and her musical lyrics. And he wrote, Matt and I never kept one of those. Mm. I quite, as, as pop songs, um, I quite like, you know, what do I have to do? I think that's a, actually, I think that's a pop masterpiece. Mm. And, you know, to a lesser degree, shocked. Mm. Let's get to it. I don't think, you know, has any sort of validity as a record personally. From my memory, oh, sorry, 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 but that's 
that's my just, memories uh, of it. Just leave. Just leave. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, you know, as I, as I was mentioning earlier, when, it, when we get to deconstruction and she decides she's going to be a, an artist, you know, and she's been surrounded by, um, by other music artists saying this is, you know, this is, this is how you free yourself. This is how you become a true artist, right? Um, you know, that I think Impossible Princess is just a wonderful, wonderful record. Funnily enough, I, I knew that Let's Get To It wasn't something that you enjoyed because there's a reference in the book to you say, this is one of the moments I stopped reading and went, uh-uh, not right, because it says in the book um, Rhythm of Love was her final full album with PWL. And it's like, no, let's get to it. But I think your point was that she, they seem to have taken songs that they'd written for the previous album and reworked yeah, them. Yeah, well, that's yeah. they literally, I mean, I was told they was half the record were just songs off the cutting room floor from Rhythm of Love. And someone else at the time picked that up saying, oh, it doesn't even know how many albums she did with Stock Aiken and Waterman. Media control. I really wanted to dig in this into this with you because it is 100% for me the theme of the book. And Terry Blamey is at the centre of the media control. There are lots of examples of him, the manager, Terry Blamey, for those who don't know, the manager of Kylie for many years, intimidating photographers to hand over copyright of their photos. This was a scandal at the time. So I don't know if you recall putting this in the book, but there are a lot of photographers around when she just first branched into music, Locomotion, I Should Be So Lucky, who were doing photo shoots with her. And then all of a sudden, Terry, outraged by the counterfeit industry that emerged around Kylie at the time, he decided it was going to be a brilliant idea to go around and uh, literally as people were taking photos of her when she was out and about, getting them to sign this ridiculous situation, getting them to sign a waiver to say that they don't own the photographs. Mm. But then with more accomplished photographers too, you describe that he's waving pieces of paper and some of them absolutely bullied and intimidated into Mm. signing over the copyright of their photos. And a couple of them, a a couple of them were like close friends of Terry's in the past. Um, So he'd worked with these photographers a couple of these photographers for ages and another one was a tv week photographer so kylie had had worked with him you know every second week for the whole neighbors period and then he just became a bull terrier with them he sounds like he was a tough almost bullying type of man and you had interactions with him over this book so can you describe terry blamey in the life of kylie well at the time i don't know if i wrote it wrote this directly in the book, but I just felt he was the luckiest human being on earth. Basically, yeah. Kylie was already Kylie had already released Locomotion. And you, know, you mentioned Amanda Pellman, who was like a, a you know, towering figure in, in the launch of her recording career. Yeah. I, th- I can't remember if she'd already recorded um, Lucky as well, but she didn't have a manager. Well, she had um, a dad. She had a dad. He was looking after the finances. I wouldn't yeah. call it managing. And okay. there wasn't any need to manage, really, you know, even while she was at Neighbours. You know, they yeah. signed the contract and that was that. So, so there was no need for an actual manager at that point. He would, he would sign the contracts on, you know, for her. He'd, he'd do the deals. Um, but when it came um, to the music side, he literally asked Amanda, oh, have you got a manager yet? And she's like, oh, no, we haven't got one yet. You know, he just said, oh, do you mind if I have, if I put my hand up? And suddenly he's Kylie's manager. You know, mm-hmm. he was he was managing Mark Jackson. Do you remember Mark Jackson? <laughs> <laughs> AFL or something? 
Yeah, and what was his song? Ah, oh, oh, some awful like novelty song he released. Yeah, right? some really. Oh man, I can't remember what the song was. No, well that's a good thing, Dino. Don't remind us. Yeah. Okay. But, <laughs> but, but you he, know, he went from he went from this this novel, literally a novelty act, to ha- um, having the biggest star of her generation fall mm. in his lap, and obviously he made. He became a very, very, very 20%. wealthy man from it. You talk about you yeah. talk about twenty percent cut. I, even me, like as like I don't know the industry at all, but I'm sitting there going, God, that's a lot of that's a big percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I got the distinct feeling talking to you now. I, I feel like time has healed some wounds. But you never said it in the book. You never said it. So it's me reading between the lines. There were indicators in here that you were quite furious with him when you wrote this. Can I tell you why? I'm going to give you some quotes from yeah, the book. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you're just basically not complimentary of him. You, this is what you wrote. You say that as soon as Kylie received international success, he, quote, dumped his family and followed her over. You also talk at another point in the book later on that you, looking forward in Kylie's career, you say Kylie needs to dump Terry in favour of someone who has a bit more creative flair. So, look, it just felt like there were little moments where I could feel like, yeah, the author here, being you, is you know, got an axe to grind with this man. Yeah. Well, no, I had no axe to grind with him personally. And, you know, years later, after he'd stopped managing Kylie, we ran into each other backstage at an after-show party for Bruce Springsteen. Oh, dear. And, yeah, and um, God bless Michael Kodinsky. <laughs> he sort of... Stepped in front of Terry when he walked in and said, look, Dino Scatina's here. Don't mess with him, all right? He's a good bloke. You know, don't get in his face. Mm-hmm. And Terry was actually very, very lovely and polite. And he did come over to me to say hi. And it was very much a sort of a wink, wink. You know, that was all showbiz, mate. Yeah. No hard feelings. Sort of really? Thing. Yeah. Okay. So, And there are no hard feelings whatsoever. Mm. Um, as I said, at the time, it just felt like uh, all the big decisions he was making, like, you know, the films he was picking up for, for example, Biodome, you know, <laughs> like that, he, these were the projects that he was initiating for her. Like, wow. Mm, mm. Yeah. That's as good as it gets, Terry, you know, that's, yeah, you, that was my feeling. But as, personally, no, no, no. I had no feeling for him once I, one way or another, other than thinking that he was truly the luckiest human being at that point. As again, he had no hard feelings about me. I've got absolutely no hard feelings towards him either. Apparently, he was absolutely volcanically angry when he found out that Nick Cave had managed to slip that demo of where the wild roses grow through to Kylie. What can you say? Like, I mean, you know. Isn't that a demonstration of someone who's not managing but controlling? He would have thought he'd been, he was doing the right thing. I'll give him that much credit. You know, he would have been thinking like Nick Cave, you know, the devil incarnate sort of thing, <laughs> trying to, trying to like, you know, Nick Cave was, I don't know if you remember this, was getting around for the two years before um, they did that song with a this uh, little um, shoulder bag that said Kylie Minogue. Mm. And, you know, so Terry would have just thought that he was just trying to, you know, not do – I think he felt he was doing the right thing. That's what I'll say. There were rumours. He's no longer the manager of, of Kylie. Um, there were rumours that he – He's not because of a severe falling out with Ron Minogue, Kylie's father. Do you have any information about that? Uh, look, I think I told you when you first approached me, like I, I know nothing about Kylie post like right. 2002 or something. 
I just mm-hmm. stopped sort of paying attention. So they- no, I didn't even know that was the case. I'd, I'd, I'd wondered why they'd split up after all those years. Sometimes amateurs know best, and a lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to Talk, the show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Amateurs, is this the best that they could do? Many fans will know about famous... Uh, Kylie's famous I wish they'd stop killing the rhinos comment okay mm. so mm. the legend is that it was around 89 and she was asked about the situation in South Africa and she'd responded with that comment I wish they'd stop killing the rhinos now I'm fairly sure that she continues to d- deny that to this day but you quote Kylie this part of your book oh, blew my mind actually you quote Kylie as having said this it's complete bullshit if I was Talking about South Africa, I probably wouldn't have been talking about the rhinos. It was just fucked. Completely fucked. Because that's playing with someone's intelligence, which really pisses me off. I've got to say, Dina, it doesn't sound like a Kylie grab. Uh, I can't remember where that quote came from all these years on. That mm-hmm. wasn't a quote that was given to me. That was a, you know, a quote taken from something. And what do you make of her media savvy these days, Dina? Well, I think she's just stuck to those basic premises, you know. Like, for instance, you know, I just after, – after my book came out, you know, so she decided – her and, and William decided that they were going to do a book. And they do a photo book. Yeah. And the intro in the book is, oh, you know, oh, I don't want to put it all into words. How could I put it into words, you know? I'm still, you know, I'm still at this in, – you know, in the path of my life. Um, so given the choice, she'd rather not say anything. So she had a whole book, and I guess it's some sort of you know, reaction to me having a book, but hers had no words. So I don't know, you know. Listen to this part of the book, okay? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead, Tim. I think I'm loving this more than you are. Kylie, <laughs> Kylie travelled over to her parents' house to find no one was at home. Kylie let herself in. She walked into her old bedroom and was confronted by an intruder rifling through her drawers. Kylie's scream startled the uninvited guest and sent him crashing through the bedroom window out into the street. Police later hinted the man was most likely a rapist named the Night Stalker. Mm. And, Dino, you do, no, nothing more than you just move on to, you know, got to be certain or something. Like, I don't right, know. right, right. Flippantly, it's in the – and, like, I read it. Even the first time I read the book when I was a much younger man, I remember going, hang on, is he going to – is he going to say anything more about this? This is like this is the highlight of the book. So, wow. you, where did that come from? That that again, you know, it's like these are you're asking me twenty five year old sort of stuff. But yeah. I, I was just that that quote. I, I'm pretty sure came just out of the research from um, um, an article in the Herald Sun from memory. Kylie and her men. Um, you take us through her relationship so beautifully and at the top of the show you talked about you had some very reliable sources who were literally in the car, literally walking with her. So now I get why in the book there's such visually descriptive um, chapters, I suppose, about her time with Jason, about Michael. Uh, I've got to say, I think my favourite out of all of them, it's, it's from an unnamed source, mm. from, um, and this is a fellow who was, deep inside the in excess camp 
mm-hmm. but he was literally standing with Michael at the countdown after awards party where Michael sees Kylie and just jumps out at her, is flailing arms, screaming, I want to fuck you, I want to fuck you. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, you know, like, that's now part of the folklore, right? So she talks about that, you know. It is, well, not, yeah. not exactly those words, but I, it's funny because a person um, who told me this said the final thing was that Michael leant over and whispered something in her ear, and that's what I put in the book was, that, you know, he whispered it, so this guy couldn't tell me what was said. And then she she comes out later and actually puts out there what was whispered, <laughs> which I thought was beautiful. But um, from memory, what what he whispered in her ear was, yeah, I don't know whether um, whether I should invite you to dinner or get married. Her relationship with Jason Donovan was fascinating, wasn't it? They had numerous fights over his use of marijuana, and you say he had a collection of dope plants in a shed out the back of his house. <laughs> yeah, did they have yeah. a tempestuous relationship? Were they often rowing? Because it seems like they were. I, I, the, it was. It was. She was. She was sort of whiny at this point. I mm. feel like there's two. There's pretty much a a, a line you can draw between the. Yeah, I'm probably staying the obvious here, but between pre-Michael and post-Michael. Yeah. You lead to this pivotal moment in the book where this devastating phone call, basically Jason's desperately trying to get hold of Kylie, can't, 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 and eventually she makes this phone call. Well, this uh, this came directly from uh, the fellow Gary Ashley, who was literally sitting next to Jason on his bed, along with, I can't remember, Richard, someone who used to be Jason's manager. Mm. can't remember the surname. So, I mean, you know, he's – I think the the whole gist of their relationship is that, um, you know, Jason's a young guy. He's a big star. So he's got all these teeny boppers, you know, in love with him. And he's got this girlfriend who's a bit of a pain, you know, a bit jealous, a bit of a pain, and he took her very much for granted. Mm. And then suddenly everything changed. The power balance, you know, out of nowhere does a 360 and she is telling him not only is he being dropped, he's being dropped for his hero, Michael Hutchins. Wow. So he was a blubbering mess. And yeah. and uh, it's not in your book, but from what I understand, you've described what was going on at his end. But I think um, I've been told Carol Minogue, her mother, was in the room when she made that call too, or at least around for support. Well, I think this comes from his version of the book, right? Uh, his, it's not his version of his life, <laughs> his book, where yeah. Um, yeah, he she then tried he then tried phoning, and Carol picked up the phone yes. and said, "Yeah, no, you know, she doesn't want to talk to you anymore." But then you take us through this unbelievable affair with Michael. Uh, it's so brilliantly described. I love this chapter, and it, this is what you write: It took Michael a while to convince Kylie that a bit of dope or ecstasy tablet wouldn't kill her. Kylie soon relented. On some outings, Kylie would look worse for wear, stumbling downstairs, crashing out on lounges. And again, you know, one of my sources was someone who was part of their clique. So he was going out to these clubs with them. So that first that first six months was the intense period when they were both in Sydney. And then um, I can't remember, I think there was you know, quite a bit of time in France together and mm. in the UK. 
And it was intense so, and it was genuine love and infatuation and sex and experimentation yeah. and, and, and all the beautiful things, seeing the world, watching the sunrise. It was a beautiful, torrid, romantic uh, affair and, yeah, had a, and has had a profound impact on both of them, actually. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and very much for Kylie, you know, she, he introduced her to, you know, like literature and, you know, and the, the whole idea of what it means to be an artist. Mm. that you don't, you know, you're the boss, you're the boss. I think yeah. that's what Michael taught her. Like, what are you, why are you listening to these people around you? You're the boss. The best thing you can go and do is watch Kylie interviews around that time and she starts flicking her hair exactly the same way Michael does. Yeah, right. Do you have any information around Prince? You mentioned him in the book. Um, she spoke about him as sex on a stick, the biggest musical influence on her, all of that. I've always had the feeling that Kylie, if you watch her interviews about Prince, up until the point she meets them, are very, very um, fawning and adoring after she meets him. I think it's one of those cases of, she's never said it, she's never said anything bad about him, but be careful not to meet your idols type of thing. Yeah. She, what, what a sleazebag sort of thing, right? Something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, she certainly said she didn't want to end up a, a notch on, on, his, on his bedpost. So lovely, that, that final scene. You know, in my in my book, I think it is. I think it's a final scene of you know, the sort of Prince is singing the most beautiful girl in the world, and he's slow dancing with her yeah. at the World Music Awards in Monte Carlo. You know, mm. like how's that for you know the little girl from Camberwell? Really quickly, you mentioned Paulie Shaw from Biodome. I read an interview with him <laughs> some years ago where he goes, "Oh, Kylie, she, I've tried to reach out to her. She never returns my call. If you're reading this, call mm. me." Something like that. They mm. definitely had an affair, didn't they? Yes, probably a regretted it, one. Yeah, well, for, for her, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think he said that it went for a couple of months. You know, mm-hmm. and then you know, Claude, what's his name, John Claude, Claude Van Dan, comes out and says he had an affair with her at the same time. Dino, what did you learn about Kylie doing this book and having met her and spoken to so many people about such intimate things, arguments in cars, breakups with boyfriends, finding sex, her parents, her dad, all these dominating, well, not dominating, but very powerful influences on her life. You you sat in the middle and got a 360 perspective. What did you learn of Kylie? That... That ultimately, you know, I, I just I wrote an article about about her on the twenty fifth anniversary of Locomotion, and I, I uh, for the for the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney and Melbourne, and I went back to Amanda Pellman, and um, Amanda Pellman made the observation that Kylie always knew where she was heading. She may not have known, you know, sort of uh, like, you know, intellectually, but she Mm. had the feeling of where her life was going to take her. Mm. Um, And all she had to do was gather her thoughts and take control of it. It's the same thing I was saying about what Mike Stock saw in her, that these people saw in this very blank canvas at that point something, the, 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 the foundations of a superstar which she was then able to go forward and basically conquer the world. Yeah. And on the 30th anniversary of the ARIA Awards, I, I wrote a, a TV special for um, Channel 10 and for Foxtel. 
And I wrote the script for Kylie Minogue without her knowing it was me. So I was sitting there watching Kylie reading my words about her own career and, you know, sort of her feelings towards Australia. And that was truly rounding off a whole surreal chapter in my own life. And you wrote the scripts? Yes. And she didn't know that? Well, no, yeah, she wouldn't know who the writers <laughs> oh, no. were for this sort of stuff. But no. I knew. <laughs> wow. That so, is absolutely ironic. Well, yeah, it was pretty bizarre. I can tell you that much. Oh, absolutely love that. That's awesome. At the end of your book, you said, it's impossible to predict where Kylie's career might go from here. Since the start of the 1990s, each new step has magically presented itself to her out of thin air. Rarely Kylie sets the agenda. What do you think's in store for her next? I think she should go, should go back to acting. Really? Do a TV show? No, I'm joking. Not Melrose I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm killing it, Dino. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was about to cut the cord. Uh, <laughs> look, you know, oh, gosh, I don't know. What she, she, As I said, she's the same age as me now. So she's 53. Mm. She's still having number one records. Mm. Um, I don't expect she's, you know, I mean, this uh, repeating myself again from the book, I don't expect she's going to undertake those humongous tours again as she has in the past. You might see more live and intimate from her, right? Yeah. Um, But, you know, as Mike Stock said, she's probably going to be as famous as she wants for as long as she wants. What would you say to Kylie if you could meet her today? Oh, I don't think there's anything can be gained from me meeting Kylie at this point in my life. (laughs) Come on, Dino. Come on. You've accidentally run into her then backstage. Oh, well, you know. um, (laughs) I Would you apologise? The other way. Oh, no, I wouldn't apologise. No. Sorry about that broom cupboard story. Maybe I'd apologise about that bit, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> if I, yeah. I probably wouldn't lead with that, though. It sort of saddens me a little bit. I know this is like sounding so fatherly or something, but all those early interviews, all she ever wanted to do was have a family, you know? Mm-hmm. And that that's sort of been sort of denied to her because of what she's, um, because of the life that she's gone on to have in a way, I guess, you know. Um, So I just hope she's happy. She deserves to be happy. She's brought so much happiness to so many people. Uh, So, yeah, but did you get the sense through authoring this book that she was a happy person then? I I felt it when I interviewed her that time. She seemed very content and very, you know, again, I I probably think that was the freest little period of her life as well, Mm. you know. So, um, but... uh, you know, and you hear this about all sort of celebrities, I guess. You know, uh, one of the things having done this book is that for years afterwards, people would come up to me and divulge information. Oh, I, you know, I bet you would have loved to have known that this happened. And some of those sort of stories I heard um, didn't paint her in the best light. Mm. What are some of those stories that you were told that didn't paint her in a good light in terms of the way she treats people or in terms <sighs> of her level of happiness? Uh, well, a bit of both. Mm. Um, yeah, one I remember was, um, I can't remember the girl's name because it's so long ago, but as I said, that, um, the book came out November 97. I think it was, it must've been the following year. It wasn't, uh, cause it was a new year's Eve party. So I'm assuming, um, you know, from memory the year after, and there was this girl that was a PA for a couple of years who told me this story. I got introduced to her and, um, she told me how they, they'd been at some TV studio 
And, you know, Kylie, they were best friends. She considered Kylie her best friend. Kylie's handbag went missing from the, um, from the green room. It was this girl's fault, and she was cut off never to see Kylie again. Really? Yeah, just you know, so coldly cut off. And I got that impression from a lot of the people that I did interview back then that they felt that, um, you know, they were just like, they were in, you know, very close to the centre of Kylie's life one day and suddenly the next they're not. I mean, there's a there's a fellow, what's his name, Greg Petherick. Yeah. From yeah. the early days who, yeah. you know, he's, he's gone. He got on, screwed uh, over, didn't he? Oh, so massively screwed over, you mm. know, and he basically – you know, was so good to her and helped her so much and just got cut. I also remember Denny Hines, for what it's worth, um, talking about Kylie. She did the backing uh, vocals on the first live concerts in Australia and Europe. I think it was the Enjoy Yourself tour. Uh, maybe it was the Rhythm of Love tour. But she she described Kylie waltzing through like a star and not acknowledging people and was not, the quote was, not very nice at all. Mm. So there are some people who aren't, uh, you know, totally telling the positive stories. The bulk of them are, let's be really fair. If you yeah, talk, yeah. Talk to 100 and people, 99 of them are saying she's unbelievably nice. You are, you've sp- spoken to her and you said she's unnaturally nice, <laughs> whatever mm, it was mm, you said. Mm. You'd never follow up this book? Oh, man. When, when, when um, everything went ballistic for her again, I got approached to, to rewrite it. I was just like, oh, there's no way in hell, even if it sells a million copies, would I put myself through that again? <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, but no thanks. That says everything, I think. There was absolutely emphatic. Dino Scatina will never follow up his unauthorized biography. Listen, Dino, in all sincerity – I just want to say thank you on behalf of many of the fans who carry this around because no matter if you're a fan who thinks it should have been a story that was told or not, it still was the first time because she was around for around 11 years by the time this was released. It was the first time we actually got to see the machinery behind everything. The one that we got snippets of but we're never quite sure of. You wrote this in an unadulterated way. You didn't sugarcoat it. You gave it to us straight. And in Kylie's world... That's a rare thing. So I can, I'm holding it in my hand now. I really genuinely thank you for this book. It's brilliant. Oh, Tim, that's, that's the kindest thing anyone's ever said about that book. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. No, it's a historical document as far as yeah. I'm concerned, and it really does. It, it gives the warts and all what went on in her early career. And in some ways, it benefits from not having had Kylie or her team involved. Look, I really appreciate you saying that. That's how I feel as well. And my whole... Um, uh, you know, my whole wish at the time was to give Kylie fans the inside story that no one else was giving them. So it's very kind to hear you say that. And again, warts and all, it's a very old book. You know, I was a, a young writer. And there, as I said, there were things that I would have done completely differently. Uh, you know, outros I would have written again, <laughs> rewritten. <laughs> but I'm, I'm so, uh, you know, as I said, I can't believe there's someone interested enough 25 years later to talk for me yeah talk to me for two hours about it so thank you very much tim well you've been awesomely generous with your time thank you so much dino all right mate take care